You are listening to the Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find podcasts and video clips of these lectures online at ecorner.stanford.edu. This week, we have a truly wonderful speaker to kick off the quarter. Hugh Martin, uh, I met him uh, this last summer when he was hosting uh, one of our students who was a Mayfield Fellow at the company, and instantly I said, oh my gosh, we need to get you in to be a speaker here. Hugh has been involved with starting many companies and is quite a seasoned and wise entrepreneur. Um, he is now the chairman and CEO of Pacific Biosciences and was recently named, the, which was recently named the hottest startup in Silicon Valley, and in fact, Forbes just just named Pacific uh, PacBio's uh, technology as one of the five technologies to, to change the decade. And he's been involved with technology and entrepreneurial ventures for 30 years. And I want to tell you, the name of his talk is 30 Years, Six Companies, 11 Bad Ideas, 13 Good Ideas. Hopefully, you can learn faster than I did. So without further ado, Hugh. Well, uh, thank you very much. I need to apologize in advance because I, I'm not sure that I would consider myself to be a thought leader, uh, but I am someone that likes to build things. In particular, I like to build companies. Um, in talking and thinking about what I how I would uh, couch all this today, uh, I decided to put it in the context of what I've done since graduating from college. So you're going to get um, effectively three stories. You're going to get the story of Hugh, you're going to get the story of a number of interesting companies, that some of which you'll recognize, some of which you may not, and some of what was going on inside those companies, because I was involved in them. And then finally, uh, I'm going to try and keep um, pointing out a few what I consider to be really critical uh, mistakes or lessons, and then also some things that um, have worked out well because we did some things right. So those will be the three tracks. So uh, I graduated from Rutgers in 1978 and moved out here immediately to work for Hewlett Packard, where I was a design engineer in their CPU group. Uh, we were building a machine that was incredibly important to them at the time because they had just had a major new semiconductor process blow up. Um, and we, at the same time, did, started to do a lot of experimentation on where Hewlett-Packard's machines spent most of their time, and we said, gee, you know, they spent a lot of time doing ad subtracts, loads, and stores. Let's build a computer that just does that. And so, of course, that's, that idea became known as RISC. We tried to sell HP on it, and they were completely uninterested, so <clears throat> we decided to quit. So four of us quit and founded a company called Ridge Computers. Um, at the time, we had no venture money, and so for the first year and a half, we worked with and just spent our own money actually in a shed in one of our founders' uh, backyards. Um, the first lesson uh, I learned, um, which I just want to point out to you, which in the end turned out to be a mistake, if and when you resign from a company and you're going to go do something that you really believe in, uh, recognize that the company has only one interest, and that is to keep you in the company. They're not focused on you. They're focused on their products and their company. And so when I left Hewlett Packard, because this product was uh, significant, they continually uh, massaged my ego and told me how great I was and how important I was and had, had me talk to ever more important people. So in fact, uh, some of you may remember two guys, Bill and Dave. I actually met with Bill and Dave, having worked my way all the way up the management ladder. And at the end, I was always going to leave, and I knew that, but 
um, what, what ended up happening is, of course, the entire management chain at Hewlett-Packard got quite angry because I left, because they'd all tried to uh, keep me there. So my first piece of advice to you is, if you're going to leave and you know you're going to leave, just leave. Don't sit around and have a whole bunch of meetings. So um, Ridge, um, we were four guys, and, and so uh, the first thing we needed is we needed a place when we moved out of the shed, is, and so we moved into a little business park over in Sunnyvale, and we needed a burg burglar alarm system, we felt. So I went down to Orchard Supply Hardware, bought a whole, all the stuff, and spent two weeks installing a burglar alarm. So uh, in retrospect, what a colossal waste of time. So when you get started, there's a lot of little fun stuff you can do to start a company. Focus on one and only one thing, get the product out. Um, we got to be very lucky and attracted two quite famous in the venture community entrepreneurs. One was a guy named Art Rock. Many people don't know Art, but he was the first money into Apple and to Intel to Teledyne. He's uh, quite a famous uh, venture capitalist. So we got Art Rock on the board and Bill Hambrick from Hambrick and Quist. So this was a gold-plated board for the four of us. But uh, the second lesson is we had this gold-plated board, but we constantly were viewing them as um, protagonists. We always felt, gee, how do we minimize the dilution? How do we make sure that they don't quite understand where we are because things may go wrong? And we viewed them sort of as um, something to be managed as instead of as an asset that can really help you out. And I'll come back with a couple more examples, but it's a classic mistake that I've seen many entrepreneurs do. And the venture guys, if you've picked good ones, can be one of the biggest assets that you can have. Um, another mistake that we made is we came from Hewlett-Packard, and so Hewlett-Packard makes everything. They make hardware, they make compilers, they make software, uh, they make the operating system. And so we said, gee, that's what you need to do. So uh, without talking to the customers, we just said, okay, we have to go build all this stuff. So, and we were building a very hot scientific technical box, and this is when a machine called the De uh, DECVAX 11780 was uh, king, and we were going to build something about 20 times faster. But we said, gee, you know, we need our own operating system, so of course we had ROS, the Ridge operating system. This is just as this little technical operating system called Unix was taking off. And so one of the major problems for the company turned out to be that porting applications to this new hot box was incredibly painful because we had developed our own operating system. But we didn't really think about that because we were going to do what we did at Hewlett-Packard. Um, and then uh, finally, um, there's actually a book about Ridge, uh, or a chapter in a book about Ridge, and it's called The Best and the Brightest. And um, we were, I think, a very smart set of people, and we built a great company, except um, we were always trying to minimize dilution, and so we had an opportunity to raise money at a time um, in a mezzanine round, and we decided, you know, we didn't like that valuation. We really didn't need to raise the money. And sure enough, the market uh, at that period of time, which is around 1985, took a dive, and that was basically the end of Ridge. It took three more years for it to actually uh, finally die, but it, we were classically underfunded. And that was all about us trying to, quote, maximize our value, and in the end, of course, it was all for naught. After Ridge, I decided, you know, I really need to understand how a big, well-run company uh, works, so I ended up going to Apple Computer. And I ended up being a director there, 
And um, I had a whole series of experiences that I'm just, I've I want to highlight four of them that came out of that. The first is, um, when I got there, I said, gee, this is this big, monolithic, slow organization. They have all these poli this politics. I need to cut through all this. I understand how startups work. And so I went around, I started meeting people, and I started advocating how we might want to uh, change the way things are done at Apple. Um, it turns out that Apple was a slightly political place, and there are antibodies when you come into any new culture, and especially if you act like you know a lot. And uh, I found out soon that the meetings with me actually started uh, actually having a name. And the, I don't know if you're familiar with the dry cleaning um, chain, but you were being martinized <laughs> if you had a meeting with me because I was so adamant about the way things should go. And that turned out to be a problem that I was so evangelical. And so I eventually figured that out and got to work uh, more uh, better within the system of Apple. The second thing that um, I learned there, which I think is a really important idea, is you need to trust your gut. You've spent a lot of time developing, I think, in most cases, terrific uh, uh, sense of where, the, where markets may be or where technology may be. And if you see something that you really think is wrong, either try to change it or decide that you, you may be wasting your time. So I'm going to give you three examples at Apple. The first is uh, I, w I ended up being in charge of desktops. So I had all of the computers that Apple designed and built uh, for uh, desktop environments. I was really concerned about Motorola's ability to keep up with Intel from a microprocessor perspective. So you remember back, this is 68,000. 10, 20, 30, 40 time. And so I started an investigation as to what architecture Apple might move to from a hardware perspective. And we looked at Spark, which was then at Sun, and MIPS. But I had a series of secret meetings with a guy named Dave Howes at Intel, who was actually running the microprocessor group at that time. And David and I actually put together a way that Apple could move, and this is in 1990, from the 68,000 to Intel. And the big problem we had was that uh, because of our leverage over Apple, over Motorola, we were paying about a fourth the price for the microprocessor that people who are buying Intel chips would. So the way we figured out we were going to get around that is, um, of course, the Intel chips at that time had to support a uh, Microsoft, a very important feature for Microsoft, which is basically old 386 addressing modes. So what we're going to do is build a version of the chip that was identical from a wafer, pers uh, a die perspective, but pin it out in such a way that it wouldn't do 386 addressing, which would mean it couldn't work in uh, um, a normal PC, and therefore we could pay the price that we were used to because they were going to still make great margins. So we took this whole plan, I took this whole plan, plan to John Scully, who was running the company at the time, and I said, gee, these guys are terrific. They're going to be doing low power. They're going to be doing the 486 and the 586. And um, we brought it to the board. And I actually made a presentation to the board of Apple. And they said, uh, where my old buddy Art Rock was, uh, he was chairman at the time. And they said, you know, this is way too scary. If, in fact, we implement the Intel processor, then there really won't be much difference between our hardware 
and the PC, and people could migrate, and that would be a big problem. So we are not going to do the Intel processor, which, as it turns out, was probably a big mistake. John Scully then decided that we needed to do a deal with IBM, and I then led the team that negotiated the deal for PowerPC, as it turned out to be called, um, with uh, Motorola and IBM. I was also then concerned about NT, and, and I was responsible for the high-end machines uh, at Apple, of course, the desktops, and I was very concerned about this new operating system NT that was coming out. So um, I had a group of 10 guys, and I put them in a separate building, and I had them take a PC, and we had mock running on the PC, and then we ported the Apple toolbox and all of the Apple user interface to mock and had that running so that you could have an, a regular PC with the Apple user interface on it. And we got, I think we got Word to work or something. So um, I again took this to John and he brought it to, he said, well, we should show this to the Apple board. So right in the big board meeting uh, room, I brought in a PC and booted it up and it was a PC. And then I turned it off and brought it back up again and it came up and there was the Mac on the screen and they were just shocked and very very concerned because they said geez if we do that what's really going to happen is Apple is going to turn into a software company because then all we'll be doing is selling software so that's very very scary we can't do that so um, there are a couple of examples where I had instincts about what I thought would be a good thing to do and Apple because of either politics or insecurity decided not to do them in retrospect, I probably should have left at that time, but I hung on for another year and a half. And the reason, of course, I mentioned those two things is they are on Intel processors, and if you know the history of OS X, it actually comes from the next, from the next operating system, which was Mach. So effectively, OS X was a baby, it, what we built was a baby version of OS X back in 1990. So, um, oh, one other point I want to make. Sometimes I think people underestimate the impact that a CEO can have on a corporate culture or the company's success. And the example I'll give you is uh, John Scully and Bill Gates. So both companies, though Apple paid lip service to the Unix market with AUX, both companies missed the internet by a country mile. Netscape came out of nowhere. And the reason Netscape was there in Silicon Graphics was because the internet was a Unix-based phenomena, and neither company uh, really cared that much about Unix, and so they both missed it. But what was very interesting is the way the two companies responded. So Bill, as probably famously know, had an offsite, a two-day offsite, wrote a white paper, 10 pages long, and turned the company around literally in three days and said, we have got to effectively uh, supplant the Netscape Navigator. Uh, and Apple did absolutely nothing. And of course, you, you now know what happened. And again, that's just what the CEO can do and demand out of an organization. So another point that I learned painfully is the CEO is really, really important. I eventually left Apple, and I was hired by a guy some of you may know named Trip Hawkins, who had founded and built Electronic Arts. And the reason I, I joined Trip is he had started a new company, a video game company called 3DO. And he wanted me, he didn't know anything about hardware, software, or how to uh, support developers, and he wanted me to come implement all that. So I went to 3DO as the president, 
So everyone at 3DO reported to me, and then I reported to Trip. And that was a, a tremendously valuable learning experience. Uh, Trip said to me, I, listen, I've taken a company EA public. Uh, I know how to do that. I won't. I'll let you do all that. So uh, if and when you do run a company and you go public, you'll realize that you have to spend days and days and days with lawyers and running around the country. And he, of course, got me to do all that. And I learned about how to do it. But, um, so, but 3DO, in the end, despite all of the hype and Trip's uh, aura, was not successful for a number of reasons. The first is the company had a flawed business model. Trip had been a software developer for Nintendo and Sega for many years, and he hated the two companies. And so he designed the 3DO business model to be everything that Sega and Nintendo was not. Software for everyone, very low royalty, and so on and so forth, which doomed the company's business model from the beginning to not work. So we had a fundamental flaw because of Trip's previous experience. The second thing is, um, the company didn't know when to stop negotiating and start partnering. And so we came very close near the end of the company's hardware life to signing a deal with Sega where we would be, our next generation 64-bit platform would be the engine in what was going to be Sega's response to the Nintendo 64, which was a much, much more powerful system. But in the end, over a dollar per cartridge royalty difference, uh, the negotiations finally broke down and Sega decided not to go and they basically passed on that, um, that uh, particular generation of machines and 3DO in the end had to get out of the hardware business. So again, um, some important lessons. I left uh, 3DO and spent some time at Kleiner Perkins where I was the entrepreneur in residence and uh, decided with uh, a young man that came in from the communications industry to sign to start a company called ONI Systems. And this is where the story kind of changes because up until this point, I had always worked for someone and I hadn't really uh, consolidated all of these very painful lessons that I had learned. So with ONI, I founded it, I was the CEO and the president, and um, we started this company in 1998. It was a metropolitan area telecommunications company. We built long-haul telecom gear. And there were a number of things that we did that caused that company to be remarkably successful. In fact, the board would many times say to me, gee, Hugh, this is the most complicated company we've ever been involved in, but you make very, very few mistakes. Why is that? And it's because in all these other three companies I just described, I'd either made the mistakes or seen the mistakes of many other people. And I was, uh, if you learn from those, it turns out that you can do a great job. So here are some of the things that I think we did well at ONI. First, <clears throat> over the board's strong objections, the second executive that I hired after the VP of development was the VP of HR. So employee number six was a vice president of HR. Most executives and boards think of, oh, you hire HR way down the road when you need to manage benefits and so on and so forth. We had to hire a tremendous number of people very, very quickly. We had to integrate them, and we had to make the company work. And the woman that we hired to be the VP of HR was masterful at this. For instance, uh, we had to hire uh, a whole cadre of optical engineers, people who actually knew what a photon was and how to manipulate it. At that time, there were very few of those in Silicon Valley. So she decided that we were going to go to Nortel 
in Ottawa, and we were going to go right in, as she said, to the belly of the beast. So she made a reservation for us, and she and I went up to, uh, I forget the name of the hotel, looks like a castle, and I lived in this hotel for four days, and there was a steady stream of Nortel people that we invited in to come join us. We hired, from those four days, we hired 35 people from Nortel. Over the life of the company, we hired 125 people out of Nortel in Ottawa and Montreal, and we moved them all to Silicon Valley. And it primarily because this VP of HR was so focused on building a team. To give you an idea, uh, I joined in 1998 in January as employee number two, and three years later, in February of 2001, we had 1,200 employees worldwide. So that's 1,200 people hired in three years. And that's what can happen if you have an, a VP of HR who understands the hiring process and knows organically how to grow a company. Another thing we did well is um, having enough cash. So we had several points where we needed to raise money. And th though it was the beginning, and, or actually the middle of the bubble, there were a number of telecommunications crashes through that entire period. And because I never focused on ownership, I always focused on how do we get the maximum amount of cash in the company, we never had a problem. Uh, we eventually were able to go public, and because the story was so strong, you may remember March of 2000, there were a lot of dot-com companies that ceased to exist. We were the very first IPO that happened in 2000 after the dot-com crash. We went public on June 1st of 2000. On the day we went public, we raised $180 million, and we were worth $3.2 billion. Five months later, we did a secondary because I thought it was really important to get more money because we saw the, uh, the uh, beginning of the end. And so we did a secondary and raised $850 million. So over a billion dollars cash raised in a five-month period at very nice valuations. At the time we raised the money, the secondary, the company was worth $14 billion. So we really maximized and took advantage of that opportunity. One, another message I'll give you around money and timing is I was in New York to kick off the road show for the secondary, and one of our two big banks called us and said, you know, we're starting to see things a little funny in the market. I think we should hold off on the road show. Maybe we wait a month. I decided that this was not what we were going to do, largely because I already had my travel booked and I was on my way. And so we just decided to go ahead. The secondary closed, the $850 million. 24 hours later, Nortel made a major announcement that their telecom business was imploding. Our stock dropped. We, we did the secondary at $74.50. The stock dropped to $30 in two days. So we made it by 24 hours. And without that money, we would have been in very, very serious trouble. The other thing I want to talk a little bit about briefly about O&I is um, never, ever, ever be afraid to go up against big, dominant players in the market. In fact, the bigger they are and the more dominant they are, the better it is. And that sounds counterintuitive, but if you have three players sharing the market, which is what happened uh, in the telecom space, it was Lucent, Alcatel, and Nortel, three of them sharing the market, they're all tuned to fighting. They're all worried about a percentage uh, point shift, uh, plus or minus, 
in share, they're focused on the customers, and it naturally causes them to be very uh, competitive. If you have a big dominant player, they get lazy, they don't focus on the customers, pricing doesn't become important, and it's far easier to compete with them. Uh, and in um, this case, we learned the hard way because these guys were all extremely focused and it was very difficult. The second thing, that, um, it, which is a corollary to this, is don't be afraid of these big guys. So uh, the story there is because we had hired 120 uh, people from Nortel, they were a little angry with us. And so on the day we filed to go public, actually, I'm going to um, back up in history just to make another point. On the day we filed to go public at 3DO, I was in Japan talking to Sega. And on the very day we filed to go public, Nintendo sued us. And Nintendo's issue was around some technology that they were uh, arguing with us about. So uh, I panicked. I called Trip and I said, it's going to screw up the IPO. We've got a huge problem. And he was slightly annoyed because I called him at 1 o'clock in the morning. And he said, listen, Hugh, this is nothing. It means we're finally real. That they would take the time to sue us means that we're somebody. It's not going to mess up the IPO. Don't even bother me until we get to the deposition phase. So I thought, this guy's really cool, no problem. And it turns out that the suit went nowhere. The IPO happened. Everything was fine. Now, I want to fast, back, fast forward to where I was. So on the day we went public, uh, we filed to go public, Nortel sued us. And my general counsel came to me and he said, Hugh, big issue, I think the IPO, we've got to disclose this, and so on and so forth. And I said, don't worry about it. It means we finally made it. Nothing's going to happen. Don't bother me until we get to the deposition phase. And I, I know he felt that I was really cool. So, um, but in the end, it, the suit went nowhere. There was one very funny event that did happen. Um, and that, and, and again, this is, uh, as a CEO, you get to decide the culture and the style that the company will have. But I was at an industry conference, we are now public, and um, I was on the podium with Alcatel and Nortel. And the guy that ran all of Nortel's telecom business was there, you know, 40 times our size. The Goldman Sachs person had one, run this very nice, uh, panel where we had all commented about our view of the industry. And then she said, okay, do any of you need, want to comment about your competitors or do you have something you'd like to directly address to um, any of the individuals on the stage? And as it turns out, when Nortel sued us, this very big, sweaty, fat guy showed up on my front porch and served me in front of my kids because they were suing me too, personally. And I was kind of annoyed by that. So I, no one was saying anything on this panel, so I looked over at him, and I said, Don, why do you keep suing us? I mean, you know, we're just trying to run a business here. And he, was, he didn't know what to do. So he looked at me, and he said, well, Nortel is all about innovation, Hugh, not imitation. You are trying to steal our technology. And I said, well, you know, I think these people have a right to move where they want. And I said, you know, Don, in case you haven't noticed, slavery went out in the 1800s in North America, or in the United States. So uh, he got more red-faced, and so we started really going at it. And they said, okay, you know, we need to really stop this. And if you two want to take it outside, you can. So 
Um, but that really helped, and quite frankly, it helped with our employees, it helped with our customers, because what happened there is little tiny O&I was now head-to-head -head on stage and being as aggressive as all of Nortel, and people then started to think of us as the next Nortel. Well, it turned out that because of the bubble, um, our business was starting to go down, and it turned out that... Um, customers were getting very concerned about buying from small companies. So we decided the right thing to sell, to do was sell the company, and so I sold O&I to um, a much larger competitor, Sienna, and um, everybody made a ton of money, so it was all a great outcome. But it was very, very difficult for me to watch Sienna come in and tear this company apart. So I made a decision that the next company I started and ran would not have to be sold. That was the number one thing I was going after. So I took two years, um, and you know, it turns out that if you start a company, get a product out the door in a timely fashion, get it profitable, take it public, and then sell it and walk away quietly, you get five gold stars in the venture eyes, world's eyes. And so they showed me every deal that moved for two years, all of Sand Hill, and I really couldn't see something that really caught my eye. In 2004, uh, More David Dow Ventures introduced me to this group of six people from Cornell University who had an idea about how to sequence DNA at a blindingly fast speed. I did about a month of due diligence and decided, you know what, this is something I really want to do. And I felt that if this could be made to work, this company would never have to be sold. What they were doing really matters. It could change healthcare forever. And so I signed up and started what is now known as PacBio. There were a couple of uh, important lessons I'd just like to highlight because PacBio is also, at least for now, doing quite well. So the first thing I did is hired a VP of HR. It was the same VP of HR I had at ONI. Unfortunately, she had made enough money at ONI. She had bought a vineyard up in Portland, so she telecommuted from Portland. But we had the same drive and energy around hiring from the day one. Uh, extremely important. Um, the next thing that I think we did that was really well, did well, is I made it my job to focus on organizational development all the time. And the reason in PacBio it's so important is, in general, startups do say, gee, we're going to innovate in this area, we're going to do one thing, and we're going to do it really well. PacBio is quite different in that we have to do about 11 things perfectly to make this system to work. We have advanced optics engineers, we have um, enzymology, we have a 26-person a enzymology group, we have a surface chemistry group, we have a parallel computing group, we have advanced um, semiconductor process design involved, we have 15 people out of Intel, and all of that stuff has to work together. Um, then uh, the other thing I just wanted to talk a little bit about is how do you build in resistance to being acquired? So I, had thought, I thought a lot about this. And there, there are many entrepreneurs who said, oh, my company's going to go all the way. We're never going to have to sell. We're in great shape. Uh, we're not going to sell. And that was me prior to ONI. Once I saw how this worked, I deliberately structured PacBio in a couple of ways to make sure that the chances we'd have to sell were minimal. So the best way to think about how you do that is to think about what actually happens when the company is going to get sold. So the first thing that has to happen is the management team 
has to decide that they want to sell. If the management team wants to sell, in general, the company will be sold. It's very difficult for the board to force the company to keep going if the management team wants to bail. But if you have a situation where the management team says, we can do it, we're 100% confident that we want to move forward, and the board says you want to sell, then you've got a problem. So the most important thing to consider if you're going to build in immunity to being acquired is to think about that board because that's where all the power for a private company resides as to whether or not you're going to sell or not. And now let's think about what happens when a board um, does this. So the first thing that will happen, I'll get a letter from, I'll pick, uh, uh, I'll pick Affymetrix. So I'll get a letter from Affymetrix and they'll say, Dear Hugh, congratulations, we've done an extensive valuation of your technology and your company and we want to buy you. And we're willing to give you so much per share valuing the company at $1 billion. And so I'll, we'll look at that and if we want to keep going and we don't want to do this, I have an obligation to take this letter and present it to the board. Now it has one other thing, usually. At the bottom it says, P.S. If you don't take this offer, we're going to buy your next nearest competitor and we will crush you. <laughs> and they do that because they know that I have to take this letter and bring it to my board. And so they want to create as much anxiety in the board's mind as they possibly can to encourage them to sell. So now you're a board member and you got this letter. What do you do? Here's the first thing the board member is going to do. He's going to say, do I think this management team can go all the way? Because the single biggest risk in all of this right now is really, do we have the CEO and the staff that can get the company all the way to being public and, and continue to grow? Because if you don't, changing out a CEO is a very tricky thing. Or if the management team is not that good, it may tell you something about the CEO or the team, and they may stumble. And you don't want to be in a position of taking the risk of having a stumble, you'll probably say sell. So the first thing you can do as a CEO to make sure your board doesn't decide to do this is to actually build the very best management team you can and one that has the credentials and the ability to go all the way. So you may have your buddy who is your founder, co-founder, but and he wants to be VP of R&D, but if you make him VP of R&D, when that letter comes in, you've dramatically increased the chance that the board is going to say, you know, this CEO is not going for the big guns that can really grow this thing. He's going for his friends. We may want to bail. So the first thing is build a great team. The second thing the board's going to do, the board member is going to do, as he's looking at this letter, is he's going to get very, very selfish. He's going to start thinking about himself. If he's a young, new venture capitalist, young, new venture capitalists don't want grand slam hits. What they want is a series of singles that are always there reliably. They want to build a reputation for being a thoughtful, fairly conservative, smart venture capitalist. They don't want to miss five times taking big risks and then hit it out of the park. So you want a very senior venture capitalist because the young guys are going to say, let's sell. So go after very senior guys. The next thing the venture capitalist is going to do is after he says, you know, I've hit five singles. I could really go for this. I'm feeling aggressive. The next thing he's going to do is going to say, okay, where is my partnership right now? Is the fund that we currently have, like KPCB 10, 
Is it underwater? Do we need to show some liquidity because the limiteds are getting a little antsy? Harvard wants their money back, whatever. So you, it's important to look at the status when you take venture money, not only look who the board member is going to be and get the most senior guy you can, look at the status of how the funds are that you're going to be in. So they have various numbered funds. And if they say, you should ask them, what fund am I going to be in? If they say KPCB 10, you say, gee, how much of that fund has been spent and where is it from a status perspective? Because that's going to affect how the venture firm, the individual firm votes. Because if, in fact, KPCB 10 is way underwater, it may be better, not for the company, but it may be better for Kleiner that they get a little liquidity and pass it on to the limiteds. So if you do those three things, build a man great management team, make sure that the board member is senior, and make sure that the fund is, is in reasonably good shape. The chances that the board member is going to say, you know, maybe we should sell this for reasons that are beyond the reality of whether the sale makes sense are much, much lower. And so at um, PacBio, we have done that. Another way you can counteract the young venture capitalist uh, problem who wants a bunch of singles is you can get somebody with a big, strong ego. And so we have a number of people who are rock stars in the industry, like Mike Hunkapiller, and he wants to prove to the world that he can do it again. So I think we're relatively immune. So throughout that long story, there were a couple of themes or ideas I just want to leave you with. The first is people are everything to a startup. People say, oh, it's the technology, or it's the market opportunity. Forget it. It really is how great is the team that you can hire and how well do they work together. And that will matter so much more than what, it, what technology you have. And that's been proven time and time again. It means you need to interview aggressively. You need to ask really hard questions. You need to have a culture that says we only hire the best. And then you need to take great care of those people. You need to have... Uh, things that make people in the culture like the place feel sticky and want to hang around, not just because they think they're going to get rich. Um, and then the, the last thing you can do to keep people is to show them that you really respect them. And, and, and that's in any number of ways, but it's very, very important that people in the company feel, gee, you know what? The CEO thinks I'm really smart. He's willing to trust me. He treats me as a peer. Uh, his office door is only open. All of that thing generates a feeling of respect and stickiness for these great people you've hired. The next thing you should do in terms of a company is over-communicate all the time. If you, every, practically every single person that comes into PacBio and they say, as an interview candidate, and they ask PacBio employees, what do you like most about this company? I would say 90% of the people would say, Hugh's company meeting on Friday morning. So for an hour, every Friday, the entire employee base gets together just like this, and I talk about every single thing that's going on in the company. I tell them where we are from a financing point of view. I tell them where we are from a uh, competitive point of view. We'll bring in guest speakers. And, and the employees really, really appreciate that I tell them these stories and that they understand what's really going on. It's a very, very big deal that you over-communicate. It also gives the employees context. We were raising money one time, and I was taking them all the way through it, and I said, you know, we've got two weeks of cash left in the bank, which is typically not something that a CEO would share with the employee base. And what happened is everyone automatically 
cut their spending. Everybody said, you know, I really don't need this right now. We're going to wait. And so communication to get context is really, really important. Don't be greedy about ownership, as I've talked about several times. It's far more important to have the board who can really market the company and give you advice than how much of the company that you own. It's much, much better to own 20% of something that's really big than 40% of something that's not worth much. The board is a huge asset. Use them. And the final thing I would say, which I really haven't focused on much, is always stay focused on your customers. What is really going to differentiate PacBio beyond our transforming technology is the fact that we built something that we know our customers are going to adore. And then finally, just a couple thoughts for you personally, if I could give you any advice. The first is, always be courageous. Don't be afraid, if you really have a great idea, to leave that company and do something great. Or don't be afraid to take on Nortel. Or don't be afraid to get in front of John Scully and tell him that you think he's full of crap. Really, really <laughs> take the risks. Your life is way too short. You've only got so much time to work. And you really should maximize it. Second thing is, as you can tell from me, I'm a, big, I'm a big believer in reinventing yourself. So if you think about it, mini computers, personal computers, video games, optical telecommunications, and now biotechnology. It's great. It, it, uh, it, I find it stimulating. It broadens your base. And quite frankly, it makes you much more valuable as a person to have many, many different industries. So don't be afraid to reinvent yourself. And then the final thing is, because I see this a lot, Please resist the temptation to grab for the brass ring. I can't tell you how many times uh, people have come to me and said, gee, Hugh, should I take this job? I've got a chance to be the VP of finance. And it's a VP of finance at a C-grade company. Or they could be the director of finance at an A-plus company. But they like the idea of reporting to the CEO, and they like the idea of having the VP title. In general, if you have the patience, it's much, much better to watch and see how a really well-run company works and to be mentored in a way that you can uh, work your way up quickly than it is to continually try and take big bets and make big, take risky bets on uh, lower-grade companies. So um, I think it's really, really important to try and keep your egos in check as you think about various career moves. So uh, I think that's about it. That was 30 years. Turns out it was 13 big mistakes and 13 good things that we did. But hopefully that's been helpful as you think about in the future, you think about either running companies or how you might work inside a company. Can we do questions? Sure. Yes. Thank you. That was wonderful. I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your vision for PacBio. Okay, the vision for PacBio. Quickly, uh, sequencing DNA is examining all the bases that are in the double helix, and it could be in a virus, in a bacteria, or a human. Right now, today, if you want to sequence the entire human genome, for instance, it will cost about a million dollars and take about six months. And in that six months, there'll be 150 machines working 7 by 24. The PacBio machine, the second version, uh, which will be out in 2013, will do that same job of sequencing a human in 15 minutes, one machine in 15 minutes, and I will tell you that our material cost for that will be less than $50. So it's a dramatic change. 
And I will tell you, this is one of these companies, you see these every once in a while, where people say, if this ever works, there is zero market risk to this company, and I can see it as a $10 billion company just sitting there. But the problem with PacBio, and that was the true with PacBio, but the problem is they said, you'll never make it work. And so it took four years of really hard work, but we now know for sure it is going to work, and we're developing a product that we're going to be shipping in 2010. So if you can do it that fast and that cheaply, what happens is, for instance, for humans, analysis of disease like cancer becomes a software problem because you can take a thousand guys with prostate tumors and you can sequence every single tumor and you can sequence their normal cells and you can throw in a computer and you can say gee what went wrong because you've now got a statistically meaningful sample so it's going to change healthcare dramatically in lots and lots of different ways but that's basically what PacBio is off to do <laughs> so, I'm um, senior in high school. You're staring at the ceiling. You want to say, I, you got to do something meaningful. My father was an electrical engineer working at GE, and I said, you know, that's baloney. I'm going to be a doctor. Uh, that got me to organic chemistry in my junior year. And there was the first D in my career. <laughs> So I decided at that point to become an electrical engineer. <laughs> so it is a little amusing that 30 years later, I'm now running probably one of the most technical biotechnology companies around. Um, I hired a, and I'm sorry to say this, Berkeley professor to come down and spend uh, two hours a week to tutor me. And I did that for a summer. I read a lot. But in the end, um, especially with this technology, though it is, half of it is very, very complicated biology, this little enzyme that we're using is actually a little uh, nanomachine. And if you think about it in that way, there's a lot of um, transference from what I'll call the hard sciences to biology. But it's definitely a fire hose. Yes? So our, our initial, so there are no customers. <laughs> uh, the only people that pay us is the federal government. We have a grant that we've got from the federal government. But, so we have no customers. In 2010, we'll have customers. Um, the way the sequencing business runs is um, there, the largest customers for sequencers are these big genome centers. So there's one in um, Livermore called the Joint Genome Center. There's one at WashU. There's one at Harvard and MIT called the Broad. They have tens and twenties of these sequencers. They're great first customers because they have built-in staff that are focused on bioinformatics and sample preparation, so on and so forth. So, and you can, instead of having 20 sales guys planted on 20 customers, you can have one sales guy planted on the broad and you get 20 systems. So we're going to focus for the first year and a half almost exclusively on these very large um, sequencing centers. Uh, that will then move, and we will probably get dragged into selling to um, molecular diagnostics companies. So you may know a company called Genomic Health that has a very important diagnostic for breast cancer. They want to be sequencing right away. Um, pharma, um, I don't know how many, how many of you have heard of the story about Herceptin and what happened with that breast cancer drug. So uh, Genentech developed this breast cancer drug, Herceptin, that looked to be very, very promising. They went to, got to phase three clinical trials and the drug completely washed out because 
it had fairly serious side effects, and it was only 15% effective. Now, in the 15%, it basically put the tumor into remission, so it was very powerful, but the side effects were enormous, and it was only 15% um, uh, effective. A couple years later, they went back to try and rescue the drug, and they started sequencing and looking at the DNA of the women that were in the trial. And it turns out that Herceptin is 100% effective in women who genetically represent 15% of the population. And they never would have known that. So drug companies are extremely interested in sequencing the patients in clinical trials so, as they say, they know who's in the clinical trial. So those are the kind of customers. But eventually, and the great promise for PacBio is that it would be a clinical diagnostic because what most people believe is these drugs that will be targeted are actually targeted to your DNA. And so therefore, before you can be treated, you're going to have to be sequenced, which means that when you go to the doctor, one of the boxes that gets checked on that multi-part form will be sequence this person. And when that happens, PacBio will be a very, very big company. Well, so um, that was a learning experience for me. So I, I, the first trip I made up there, I'm trying to close a candidate, and one of the things I typically do is I realize this is a joint cell, so I'm going to meet with a significant other. So I'm out to dinner with this young engineer who's just spent 10 years getting trained perfectly in what I need and his significant other. And she's curious, and so she said to me, she said, gee, we just bought a house here in Ottawa. What house could we buy in Silicon Valley? Uh, and very stupidly, I said, oh, well, gee, what did you buy and how much did it cost? And she said, I sp we spent $80,000 and we got a two-story brick house. And that's 80000 Canadian, by the way. So now, so I'm thinking to myself, well, maybe you could buy the garage. <laughs> but we got very clever. And what we did is um, we, we basically brought in-house two real estate um, agencies. And so when these candidates, especially from Canada, would come down, we would show them rental areas. We even had what we called the, um, actually, I think we called it the Canadian slum. But in Cupertino, <laughs> in the Cupertino, there was this whole area where our employees lived um, because they wanted great schools and they could rent into the area and, and, and have great housing. So, and then we focused on things that helped the wives or the, uh, the significant others, excuse me, assimilate. And so we had outings, we did whale watching, everything we could do to try and make them feel comfortable and help integrate them. Um, it was very funny. When they, and they literally all showed up in the period of a year. And I looked out in the parking lot, and all of a sudden there are all these Mustang convertibles. And it turns out that many times in the mind of a young Nortel engineer, when they come to California, what they really want is a Mustang convertible. <laughs> it was also very interesting because many of those Mustang convertibles, two years later, turned into turbo Porsches and Ferraris. So uh, many of them, and many, most of those people, we said, why don't you come down for a three-year experiment, see if it works, and if it works, you can stay, and if it doesn't, you can go back to Canada and you had a great time in California. And I'd say probably 90% of them ended up staying. Yeah? Uh, 
characteristics that you look for, I guess, other than just the technical qualifications, but like the X factor that you can tell that this person's going to be a really good team member? So, not to discriminate against myself, but in general, what I like is people whose, whose career trajectory is very steep because they're hungry, they want to work hard, um, and they're continuing to think very, very positively about where they may end up, and they're quite ambitious. When you find people who have reached the point in their career where they're relatively stable, um, it's very, very difficult sometimes to energize them and get them to work. So one of the things you want is someone who's really hungry and who's en really energized. You also want somebody who is, we, we think, very smart. So we really grill candidates quite um, and we spend time, we even have question books that we distribute to make sure that when people interview that they get interviewed um, uh, completely. Um, and then I think the, the final thing we look for is uh, how they would integrate into our organization. So we're looking for people who are uh, compatible and would work well in a group environment. And for that, us, that's very important given the complexity of what we're actually trying to build. Now having said that, the particular problem we've had at PacBio has been a little difficult because much of what we're doing is so advanced, it doesn't exist in any commercial entity. You can't go say, oh, I want somebody out of XYZ because no one's ever done this before. So we have a lot of PhDs and postdocs in this company, and many of them have no company experience. I can't tell you how many times I have been on the phone, I'm literally over 10 times, with some postdoc trying to convince them that the number of papers on their resume is not what's going to be important long term. It's the number of patents that they're going to have. Uh, but um, those are some of the issues we've had to wrestle with. We done? Yeah. Okay. Thank you for coming. Sure. You have been listening to the Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find additional podcasts and video clips of these lectures online at ecorner.stanford.edu.